I was uh, looking, I, I thought single ladies car care day. How about stupid men car care day? I, <laughs> I, I need that ministry in my life. <laughs> We're going to start a three-part series this morning uh, about how then shall we live, kind of asking the question, how, how do we as individuals in the 21st century, with all of the contingencies of our lives, all the stuff that's sw- swirling around us, and uh, how do we stand up for God and um, represent him? And, and how do we, not just as individuals, but as a community, how do we have a voice for God? Uh, I was thinking of this text. It's a, it's a kind of a wild, wild west text. It's out of Exodus 7, where uh, God says to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Such an interesting thought that somehow Moses was like God to these other people. And the more you think about it and you look at the New Testament, you realize that that really, he's still saying that to us. That on some level, we're like God to people. People that don't seek him, people that don't necessarily even believe in God. That somehow the, the, the real only encounter they're going to have with God is through your life. In your job or uh, maybe family members that you know or friends that you've encountered. That somehow it's your life that becomes the voice of God to them. And how that should make us take some pause. And that it has some sense of of gravity to it. I mean, are we doing it faithfully? If I'm God to people, how faithfully am I representing God? Um, And it's a sobering thought. I think that we need to pause every once in a while and sort of take stock in the fact that, that every one of us individually and as a church... We carry the voice of God to people, and we need to be more intentional about taking that place or taking our place in that role. And, and, and what I think this is, to pull it off, I think that we need to think of ourselves as a prophetic people. Now, when we use the term prophecy in, in the Christian sense, it's not predicting the future. It's not what that's addressing. Prophecy is this idea that what we're doing has inspiration behind it. That it's not just human effort or human passion or human um, emotion or rationale, but somehow as we move in the world and we do what we do and we say what we say, that there's this sense of a wind, uh, of something more behind it, a, a kind of a sense of something greater that's behind it. So being a prophetic people are a people who have the wind and the life of God behind them. That somehow people are touched and surprised by the joy that you have or the kindness that you have or the attention in which you pay attention to them. That there's something more to it that's being prophetic. And I think to pull off a kind of a prophetic life or being a prophetic church, we have to have a, kind of, a, a certain kind of mindset. And that's what I want to focus on. How then shall we live? What, what, what ways in which we live would enable us or empower us to be that kind of people to those around us. And I thought of this text in James 1. It says, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I think it's so easy to be not listen <laughs> to be or slow to listen, right? And quick to speak and really quick to get angry and sort of ticked off at people about things that they do or things that they don't do. And so I I think that there's this kind of notion that if we're going to be a people that actually carry the breath of God, we need to learn to listen instead of react. 
I love the story of Jesus when, at one time when they bring that woman in front of him and, and all of them are saying, we need to stone her and a lot of pressure to react to the situation and Jesus doesn't react. He sort of kneels on the ground. He starts riding on the ground and it's almost like he's slow. He's quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. And in a sense, what he's doing is he's wanting to make sure that he's representing God and not just a reaction to the circumstances around him. I think this is part of being a prophetic people that we're quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger because we're trying to catch what is God doing, what is God saying in this context. When I was thinking about that this week, I I thought of... um, Gideon's army. If you remember Gideon, he, the text tells us these Midianites, they were these bad guys, were raiding Israel and just bumming everybody out and taking their stuff. And, uh, and so Gideon was called to stand against them. So he rallies the troops of Israel and there's like 32,000 of these guys that show up. And then we pick up the narrative. This is in Judges 7. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that's Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley Valley near the hill of Moreh, which is just north of Owasso. <laughs> and the Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Announce now to the people, anyone who's freaking out here, you can go back, leave Mount Gilead. And so 22,000 men left and 10,000 remained. So most of them left. And then watch God's response. But the Lord said to Gideon, Still too many. Take them down to the water, and I'll sift them for you there. And if I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. If I say, this one shall not go with you, then he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water, and there the Lord told them, okay, separate these guys, that when they go to the water, they're all thirsty. When they run to the water, there's going to be some that are just going to kneel down to drink and just put their faces on the water. But there's going to be some that when they kneel down, they're going to pick up the water like, uh, you know, in their hands, and they'll lap with their tongues like a dog. Right? In other words, they're going to be a little less oriented to just fulfilling their own impulse and a little more oriented to the fact that there's, that, that, that there's something more going on around here than my immediate needs, that there's some kind of a force that's out there that might be marshalling against them, and that they're more ordered in their life. And so what happens here is only 300 of them lapped with their hands to their mouths, all the rest got on their knees to drink. And so God brings them down to 300. Sometimes I think that if we want to be a prophetic group that, that it isn't that we need a whole bunch of people. Sometimes less is really more. Sometimes, you know, I'm not sure being prophetic as a group of people requires the community to be huge. It, it does require the community to have a certain mindset. And so I want to talk to you about three traits this morning. We'll talk some more in the next couple of weeks. But three that I want to focus on, these traits of, that make a group prophetic, that, that they're bent in a kind of way that carries God's voice to the people that we've been called to speak to. And I think we are called to speak to people. Not everybody will listen to you, but some people will. I love when it talks about Paul, that he felt called to the Gentiles, and it talks about Peter, that Peter was called to the Jews. I think all of us are called to a people, to groups, to individuals, that you're destined to impact. And, and we have to dare to take our role seriously. So, so I think the, the kind of thing that will make you more alert and, and you know, approach your life in a more ordered way intentionally would be things like this. Number one is, I think a prophetic people need to be really cautious about how they handle truth. What you know to be true, what do you do with it? Do you use it as a whip? 
Do you try to straighten out people? I mean, how do you handle the truth? I think there's an accurate way to handle truth, which means there's an inaccurate way to handle it. We read in 2 Timothy 2, Paul writes, do your best to present yourself to God. See why? Because we have to be his voice. We need him to speak through us. We present ourselves to God as one approved, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, who correctly or accurately handles the word of truth. He's talking about handling truth, holding truth. I think that the way that we do this most accurately is by holding truth in a spirit of love. Right? Uh, what, do you, what do you hold your truth in? Huh? Uh, okay, any hot dog enthusiasts here? Okay, good. I, I, it's summer. I love hot dogs. They're really bad for you. Got nitrates in them and they're stuck in some intestines or something. <laughs> but man, are hot dogs not good, right? I mean, Nathan's hot dogs, ballpark hot dogs. I even love the Oscar Mayer hot dog with the cheese in them. Right? I mean, so bad before you put them on the grill, just pepper those, you know, just brown them up, blacken them up a little bit and chow them down a little, you know, you got, but you know, you know, if you're a hot dog enthusiast, you know, it's more than about the hot dog. You got to consider what it's in. It's important to wrap that dog in a nice soft bun, right? Even a nice soft piece of bread is okay. You can sometimes get some liquid cornbread, dip it in there and fry it. You got yourself a corn dog, Right? In a stick, baby. I'm going to slap somebody right now. So good. <laughs> or this. How about this? Ever been to the airport? Annie's pretzels. A hot dog in a pretzel. Who thought of that? <laughs> somebody. Somebody that was trying to mess with our lives. So good. How can you resist that? <laughs> But you know, you, if, if you're not careful, you could, you could put hot dogs in a thing that would, would make it horrible and make it not good. You know, like putting a hot dog in a piece of cardboard ain't going to fly. Or did you ever have somebody drop the hot dog off the grill and it rolls in the sand? Nobody's going after that hot dog. Right? Nobody's going to eat a hot dog with sand all over it because sand in your mouth with the hot dog just ruins the experience. See, what you carry stuff in matters. What you roll your stuff in matters. We're to hold the truth in love, not in anger, not in disgust, not in a sense of being exclusive or better or smarter or more right than everyone else, not with pride. Do you remember the Pharisees Jesus had such a hard time with? They talked the truth. They talked the scriptures. But they did it in a way that destroyed people. They took truth and used it as a whip where they, they kind of made people, now see here, they're doing what they're not supposed to be doing on the Sabbath. They thought people were made for rules, and Jesus said, no, no, the rules were made for people. Huh? And so they actually, Jesus actually told them that they make, he said, when you teach, you make people twice the child of hell than you are yourselves. Wow. How to win friends and influence people. <laughs> Lucifer spoke truth to Jesus in the temptation, quoting scripture after scripture, and he was using it as an evil one. You can use truth in a way that though it's the truth, you've made it evil. You've rolled it in arsenic. 
If you're spouting truth because you're fed up about how someone is acting, you're evil with it. If you're yelling at people, trying to control them with truth, it's nothing but selfish ambition. You're wrapping it in evil and you're actually making the truth something demonic. I mean, think about that. Telling someone the truth about God in a way that is demonic. James addresses this. He says in James 3, who is wise and understanding among you? Who has the truth in their lives? Let him show it, show the truth, show the wisdom. How? With a, wrapped in a good life. Wrapped in deeds that are done with humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy, you wrap the truth with envy. Or selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. One version says, or lie against the truth. You have the truth, but you've wrapped it in a lie. And it comes out of your mouth as a lie. Such wisdom, he says, does not come down from heaven, even though it might be true, but it is earthly, unspiritual, wrapped in the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, you find disorder and every evil practice. Oh my gosh, this is why sometimes when you run into people that are yelling at people, you know, whether they're on street corners yelling gospel stuff supposedly at people, and you listen to them and you just cringe. You think, what is wrong? They're saying the words of God, and yet they sound so horrible. What is it? They've wrapped it in meanness. Or people that get into arguments about God, or yell at their kids about what they're not doing right, and quoting Jesus in some way. But he says, the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, and then is loving peace. Peace means everything's appropriate. It's considerate. Of the person who hasn't embraced the truth yet. You're considering them. Jesus, when his disciples were walking through on the Sabbath, were picking heads of grain and eating them. They were doing what was not lawful. And Jesus wasn't doing it. But when, when he saw them doing it, the Pharisees said, now see here, why are they doing that? Jesus said, consider. He was considering. Consider. They were hungry. They forgot it was the Sabbath. Duh. They're my disciples. They're still dumb. Considerate, submissive, full of mercy. This is so wild. Truth only remains truth in a godly way when it's full of mercy. But what's crazy is truth is so black and white, and mercy is so gray. So how do you present something black and white in a completely gray way? That's our call, if we want to be the voice of God for people. You're, you're full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, raise a harvest of righteousness. The righteousness is rightness. It's things are right, finally. The only way you're going to sow right, get rid of wrong, where truth prevails, is when you sow in peace, kindness, consideration, love. There's no, you can't handle the truth here. It's not in this. This is how Paul says to handle the truth. Instead, he says in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love. Wrap some soft bun around that thing. We will in all things grow up into him who is the head. That is Christ. You know, you ever get the Nathan hot dogs? Like up in, where is that place up in Chicago when they fry, they cook the little butter on the bun, they put it on the bun? Oh, a toasted bun? Oh, my Anyway, <laughs> what time is it? We better get done, praise the Lord. 
Speaking the truth in love is different than just speaking the truth. Do you just speak the truth? Thinking you're being right? Love is gentle. Love is respectful. Love respects the right of others to not believe the truth and for them to not lose their value in your eyes. People have the right to disobey God. God lets them do that. And he still loves them even when they do. He's got this kind of way about him. And are we reflecting him or are we just reflecting our own way that we get upset at people? In 1 Peter 3, Peter writes, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord, which means there are going to be some things you don't want to do that maybe even you're disgusted by. But even though you set Christ as Lord in your heart, always be prepared to give an answer to people who asks, who ask for the reason, you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So people outside of faith are asking, what are you doing? But do this when you respond to them with gentleness and respect. He's talking about people here who slander them. He goes on. He says, keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you, you treat them with gentleness and respect. Those who, who speak against your behavior, they're, and, and, and they're, it says in Christ, may be ashamed of their, you won't be ashamed of their slander. He's saying these people are slandering them, being malicious against them. And Peter says, if they ask you with gentleness and respect, respond to them. Not get even. Man, when I was younger, just first came to Christ and people would be rejecting when I try to talk to them about the Lord, there was something in me that just wanted to say, just wait till the rapture. <laughs> wait till the last of judgment see the crowd. <laughs> when they open the books and you burn. I mean, there was something in me that wanted to just slap them upside the head because they were rejecting the Lord Jesus. They're really just rejecting me and I was upset about it. See, this means that you and I, we have to be careful about how we approach the truth and how we handle truth because truth can kind of make you crazy. There's a text in Paul, he says, love, uh, knowledge puffs up because you're a big head. Love edifies. We just have to be careful about the truth that we discover. I would even suggest that you should be a little suspicious that you're going to mess up the sacred text every time you read it. That you shouldn't be that confident every time you pick it up. We need the spirit of truth to guide us into truth. The spirit is the spirit of love. But you know, we tend to trust our human rationale and our opinions. We have opinions, we can rationalize, we have the Bible, and just me and Jesus, we got it all things, we just got it all worked out. Me and Jesus got our own thing going. Me and Jesus got it all worked out. Me and Jesus got our own thing going. We don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. I've got CDs out on the... uh, (laughs) Praise God. But it's a bad idea to trust yourself. It's a bad idea to go with your opinions. It's a bad idea to read your Bible without humility and fear. When I hear somebody say with certitude, well, it's right there in the Bible, and they lap out, you know, lay out two or three proof texts, man, I cringe. 
Because this is not handling the truth in love. It's handling the truth with nothing but opinion and rationalism. And you want to know something that infects evangelicals more? There isn't anything more. A prophetic people own the fact that human reasonings and opinions color sacred texts. And we should be downright scared that when we read it, we're going to read it wrongly. We should have a humility about it. I, just to give you a simple example, back in the, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. And um, uh, I grew up in a time where tattoos were not in vogue. They weren't. You had a tattoo on, you were a criminal. <laughs> I'm just telling you. It, you know, it's gotten cool now, but it wasn't cool then. You're either a criminal or a biker or a biker babe or a prostitute. So anybody that got a tattoo, you're always going, well, you must be a, an ex-prostitute. <laughs> you know, if you're coming to church or an ex-biker or something, you know. <laughs> so when our kindergarten teacher of this church I was pastoring in the early 80s came to our precious Christian school that we had to protect all those little children from the world. And she had a little tattoo on her wrist Oh, it was a cross, but oh, she crossed some line that shouldn't have been crossed. And in my soul, I mean, I can't tell you, I knew it just would freak me out. It just freaked me out. And I remember saying something to Gail, and I thought, well, I just got to go back to the scripture. And sure enough, I remember this text from Leviticus, do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves, for I am the Lord. And I thought to myself, yeah, you and me, God, we agree. <laughs> so I'm trying to fix, I'm thinking to myself about going and talking to that precious, well, maybe not so precious sister in the Lord. <laughs> and then I just, by chance, I read up a verse and I read this. This is the verse right before that verse I just read you. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head. Or clip off the edges of your beard. I'm thinking to myself, I just saw myself with these big old side mullets. Big old beard. I'm thinking, no, that can't be right. See, sometimes if you buy a text, you got to buy everything that's around that text. So I'm going to get all over you for tattoos. I got to get all over us for cutting our hair. Shaving. See, the weird thing about us is, is that our opinions work their way into sacred text all the time, and we pervert it. I don't trust myself when I read sacred text. I, I don't trust myself because there are texts I like and want to talk about, and there's a text that I avoid. They're the bothersome texts. They're the things that Jesus, when he says it, I just shake my head and think, oh, Jesus, you're so otherworldly in your mind. I discount them. So for instance, that rich young ruler, you know, that comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, what have you been doing? He said some things. Jesus told him some things. And the guy said, oh, I've been doing that since I've been a kid. And then Jesus said, you have one thing that you lack. Go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. It's a disturbing text. It's a, I don't know what to do with that kind of text. So what do we do with it? Oh, it's for the rich young ruler. But then 
we run into Jesus in Luke 12. He's not talking to the rich young ruler. He's talking to all of the disciples. And listen to what he says. Sell your possessions, Luke 12. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Okay. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief will come in, or comes near or moth destroys. Do you know that historically, historically there have been tens of thousands of people that took Jesus exactly at his word? Rich barons and different people. That there's, the stories are full of, in history of them reading this text, hearing this text preached, and exactly doing that, giving everything away, giving it to the poor, and living their lives serving the world. So some people capture that. I mean, it's a disturbing text. My point is, I don't think, it's just messy. And at some point, you should just realize when you go to the scripture, I don't get it. And if you want to tell me to do that, I'll do that, but I don't know what to do with that. And that's okay. We don't have to jam all the text to make sense for us. We need to let them mess with us and be open to the text we love and to the text we don't love. There's texts that we have in Scripture that we completely ignore that are direct commands. Those of you that are Bible people who love the Lord and obey his every word, no, you don't. <laughs> Let me give you one from the New Testament, Romans 16, 16. <laughs> Greet one another with a holy kiss. <laughs> There's no suggestion in this text. 1 Corinthians 16, 20. All the brothers here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. There's two times. Not the two or three witnesses. 2 Corinthians 13, 12. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Thessalonians 5, 26. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Somebody wants to make out over here. <laughs> <laughs> See, we don't do this. <laughs> well, so I guess I'll do it. <laughs> then there's other texts we just pound our fists over. We just rationalize it all because we, we just, we've just got it all neat and tidy. I love the text, you must be born again. It's one verse. And the way I used to use that text was they say, man, you must be born again, which meant, I say, well, how do you do that? Right now, I'll tell you what, I'll pray this prayer, you pray after me, and then you're born again. We made it an event-oriented thing. In the last 15 or 20 years reading history of the church, they didn't make it so much an event. You know what they thought? They thought being born was an experience of life and that being born again was a step into a new life, not an experience. When I was born, I was born like 59 years ago and it's still an experience. It wasn't a moment it was, it's a life that I've been born into. When we follow Christ, it's not just be born again, pounding your fist, saying you've got it. That you, not, you need to know the day or the hour. Well, most of us when we were born had no clue there was a day or an hour. That was a joke. It was pretty funny, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, my point I'm trying to make is that truth is a little gnarly, and I don't trust myself when I read sacred texts. What I do is I do two things. One is, I try to come to the text without being rigid. I try to come to the text without trying to be too confident and to just open my life to the Holy Spirit. And secondly, I listen to the fact that I'm part of a communion of saints. We say it in the creed. We believe in one holy church. 
but also the communion of saints, which means we are linked up with a story that's been going on for 2,000 years, and I need to listen to how the church has dealt with this. How have they dealt with issues of sin? How have they dealt with issues of righteousness? How have they dealt with texts like this one where Jesus said, go and sell all that you have? And when you start digging, just you know what's cool is you don't have to have big libraries. You got Google, baby. <laughs> you can Google it and find out what the church has said about different things. Have a sense of submission. Why? My whole point is this, is that accurately handle truth so that we can be prophetic. Number two, a prophetic people are a people of faith. I love what Jesus said in Mark 11. Have faith in God. Just have faith in God. It just means trust. And it's a mountain moving thing. Watch. Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. I think we should trust God for things. I think we should trust God for people. I think when you go out into your everydays with your kids, with your family, with your job, you should ask God to bless people Find promises and pray them over people. You know, uh, ask God to come into people's lives, even people that don't have faith. Ask them if you find out they're hurting or they're sad or they need direction. Say, do you mind if I pray for you? Most people will say, sure, thinking you'll do it later, but do it right then. Right? Freak them out a little. Just don't pray loud. Yeah. <laughs> right? And, just, and, and what's cool is God will sometimes do it. I mean, I wish that every time we prayed it, everything we said happened, but that's not how it works. This is like we pray for people, for healing, for, for, for provision, for wisdom, for peace, for whatever, and we're not responsible to make them happen. We're just supposed to be, we're just responsible to pray. And I, I think, I love John Wimber's story. He's a guy that, he's passed away now, but he's the one that started the vineyard movement back in the 80s. And uh, Wimber was a Baptist guy who didn't really believe miracles were for today, but he was challenged by the James 3 text where James says that, is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and that you were to pray for him that the Lord would forgive them and, and raise them up out of their sickness. And so he's telling his elders, we need to start praying for people. This is what the Bible says. We're saying we're Bible people. So we're going to start doing it. And so he got his elders together and every t- they had a pretty big church with lots of you know, people that are going through illnesses and, and those that were terminally ill. He said, we prayed for two years and every one of the terminally ill patients died. Not one of them were healed. But we just kept doing it. He said, all of a sudden, after two years, somebody actually got healed. And then they were scattered. There were times where lots of more were healed and there were times that they weren't. But they, he said, just being committed to doing it. I loved that story because I think we just need to be committed to doing what God asks us to do and not think we're responsible to make it happen. Uh, but, but here's the, 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 where I got mixed up about faith because I thought faith put us in charge. I thought, you know, early on I'd pray for miracles and some cool things happened, some really legitimate kind of unexplainable things happened. And when they happened, some in, in my mind, I kind of turned into big man on campus or something. <laughs> kind of like I was thinking, boy, you know, I can pray and God will do things. And I almost felt, I didn't really think this, but I kind of did, that God was more of a vending machine. That if I put the coins of right words and the coins of right prayers and the coins of, uh, of my sense of confidence that I could put, put enough coinage in and I could get me a bottle of miracle. Right? But I could take charge of the world by promises and prayer and faith. But faith doesn't put us in charge. Faith is trust, which is everything about not being in charge. Faith isn't witchcraft. Witchcraft p- 
is an attempt to put yourself in control over people and over circumstances. And witches will use spells and incantations from books. Uh, for a while there, when I examined myself, I thought, you know, I'd take incantations or at least prayers and grab Bible verses and try to manipulate circumstances or manipulate people. And I realized that kind of sense of trying to be in control was really more witchcraft than faith. Trust is really being out of control. Ever do a trust fall? You know, where you fall back into somebody's arms? Man, there's one point you're not in control. And the person's got to be on their game or you're going to fall on your head. Have faith in God. Faith is about embracing a kind of prophetic vision that ultimately God is going to bring beauty for ugliness. He's going to bring justice where injustice exists. He's going to bring love where there's indifference and hatred. But you don't know when. You just see bits of it appearing. It's like the dandelions that we get around here in February or March, right? That whenever you see, or not the dandelions, the daffodils, when they first peak up, you know, in the early, early spring. Most of us know that when a daffodil shows up, there's a good bit of winter left, right? But they're the first spring flowers. So spring has kind of begun, but there's winter left. That's what miracles are for us. They're like daffodils that pop up. We're the daffodil people. (laughs) Trusting for them to come. But there's a good bit of winter left, right? So somehow we act in faith and we pray to see beauty and justice and love increase in our world, but we don't use faith in a violent way or some kind of controlling witchcraft way. We're just a people who are smack in the middle of God's dream with a, and a future plan of what he has where all wrongs will be put to right. And so we're a people of faith. And then finally, the mindset that makes us a prophetic people is that we are a loving The agape kind, that's that Greek word agape is used to specify the kind of love God has where he, he loves based on himself, not on the person who's, or the thing being loved. It's setting value and preciousness based upon him. And that somehow he sets love on us. That we as God's people, we look at the people in our world and we just set love on them, value on them. What are they worth? In our minds they're worth Jesus because God, Jesus comes for all people. He thinks they're worth him. And so we set value on people. This kind of, it's a love without filters. It's a love without conditions. It's a love that's a little bit incautious and lots of reckless. It's a love that's universal, that has no, no qualifications to it. We see it described in Matthew 5 where Jesus said, you heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, you love those enemies and pray for people who persecute you. Why? This is how you're like your father the most. This is where you're most like your father where you carry his image when you love people. Why? Because he causes sunshine to rise, not just on good people, but evil people. He sends rain, the thing that blesses the earth, not just on righteous people, but unrighteous people. He said, if you just love people who love you, right? Aren't even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than anybody else? I mean, pagans do that, but be perfect. Like your father's perfect. How's the father perfect? He loves unconditionally. He loves without any restriction. He just loves people. And on some level, if we're going to be the voice of God, if we are God to Pharaoh, we've got to be to people on this sense of love where we're not thrown by their stupid. We're not thrown by their sin. We're not thrown by the things that are offensive. We're not thrown by their views of the world. If they're not believers at all, we just look past all that and say, man, 
You're someone that matters. You're worth Jesus to God. You're a VIP. What's cool is that unconditional love eventually is a kind of love that makes a demand. It calls for a response. Aquinas said it this way. He said that in God there's this thing. He uses a Latin word, exitus, E-X-I-T-U-S. Something goes out of God, it's his love. It just exits God. And then when it hits creation, there's like a reaction. And the creation he calls, the Latin word is reditus, R-E-D-I-T-U-S. And it's this reaction back to God. It's like, it's like, it's like the yin and the yang. It's like, the, it's like a boomerang. It goes out of God, but it has a call to it. Come to me. And, and the way it works is like in that part of your knee, if you get hit it, you know, if you're healthy, and they hit you on part of your knee, what happens? It kick out. It's like automatic. You just get hit. It kicks out. So God just exits reditus. It just happens. So when you love people unconditionally, there is a call to a reditus, a response. And, and on some level... It's the call for one to live better. It's called to one to live as God imagined them to live. But it's unconditional, but it does have a call. The best example of this, I'll close with this, is um, if you've read or watched any of the shows or, or, the, or the, uh, uh, the theater presentation of Les Mis, Les Miserables, it's a, a, a historical novel, French historical novel, written in the 1800s by... Um, Victor Hugo, but um, it's 1,500 pages. Watch the movie. <laughs> but in the intro of the story, in the most latest rendition, the most movie rendition, that's the singing. Um, Jean Valjean, I mean, in all of the story, Jean Valjean is basically, it starts out in the intro that he is a, a criminal. And he, what made him a criminal is, he, criminal is he stole a loaf of bread, stole a loaf of bread, and tried to feed a starving family. He steals the loaf of bread, and then he's put into prison, into a, a mining camp, and he's hard, hard working uh, in this horrible situation for 19 years. And so because the judgment seems so much more excessive than the crime, bitterness gets into his heart. He gets out of the prison, and as he's going to try to find a life, he stumbles the first day um, on this, this uh, bishop's house, a Catholic bishop's house. And he goes in and the bishop welcomes him, which surprises him. The bishop feeds him anything he wants, which surprises Jean Valjean. And then as he's sitting there eating, he sees the silver in which he's eating and all the silver in the room, the candlesticks and stuff. And he's thinking to himself, there's so much riches here, so much more just in this fork than all, the, uh, all that I made for those 19 years uh, as, as a, in the prison, this one fork could is worth more. And so what happens as the bishop goes to bed and the attendants go to bed, uh, Jean Valjean goes, to, goes and lays down and in the middle of the night, he gets up and he starts stealing all the silver. He gets a few things and the bishop hears him and comes in the room and asks him what he's doing. And so Jean Valjean accosts him, hits him over the head, knocks the bishop out. He runs for his life. So we pick up the narrative. This is the bishop saying to Jean Valjean when he runs into him, come, sir, come in. For you are weary, and the night is cold out there. Though our lives are very humble, what we have, we have to share. There is wine here to revive you. There is bread to make you strong. There is a bed to rest till morning. Rest from pain and rest from wrong. And then Valjean says, as he's eating, he's thinking this, 
as he eats and then in the story he's, he says, he let me eat my fill, the bishop. I had the lion's share. The silver in my hand cost twice as much what I had earned all those 19 years. That lifetime of despair and yet he trusted me. The old fool trusted me. He's done his bit of good. I played the grateful surf and thanked him like I should. But when the house was still, I got up in the night, took silver, took my flight. And so he runs and runs into some constables who catch him. And, and Jean Valjean said, they asked him, where'd you get this silver? And they said, oh, the bishop gave it to me. They laugh and bring him to the bishop. And when the constables come to the bishop, they say, tell the reverence his reverence, your story. Let's see if he's impressed. You were lodging here last night. You were the honest bishop's guest. And then out of Christian goodness, when he learned about your plight, you maintain he made a presence of this, present of this silver. And the bishop says, that is right. And then he turns to Valjean and says, Would, he said, surely something has left your mind. You left, uh, you left so early. You forgot that I gave you these also. And he started bringing all this other silver out. Would you leave the best behind? So, messieurs, you may release him, for this man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty, and God's blessing go with you. The constables leave. But then he turns to, the bishop turns to Jean Valjean. Here's what he says. But remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. Be the witness, by the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have bought your soul for God. See, what he was doing here is he's unconditionally loving him, but he's making a demand. But the demand was rooted in sacrifice. See, we can make the demands to our world, but that is where our demands must be rooted. They remember Jesus when he found that woman, or they brought that woman in front of him caught in adultery, and he told her at the end of that narrative, go and sin some more. He made a demand, said no more. <laughs> if you talked as much as I did, you would make more mistakes. At the end of that narrative, he says, go and sin no more. He makes a demand of her. Go and sin no more. But, but his whole, he didn't do that before he had refused to condemn her. Before he had refused to judge her, he was not angered or disgusted by her. He was even willing to be kind to her and be actually maligned and judged by the people around him. She scandalized him. But after he was willing to love her and accept her and not judge her, then out of that place, he can make a demand. See, we have no right to demand of people go and sin no more if there's one ounce of judgment in us, one ounce of unwillingness to be, to be scandalized by them and to, to actually be in a place where shame comes onto us. We need to jump into people's lives no matter what it makes us look like in the name of love because here people feel safe. There's no manipulation, no judgment, no disgust, just love. So here's my question. Imagine, imagine if we were a people of faith who handled truth rightly, who 
walked by faith without violence or control and who love well. This would truly be a prophetic people who speak for God in a city, who God could say, when they see you, I have made you as God to these people. Let's stand. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.